Amen. Yeah, you can grab, you can grab a seat. Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you. Um, it's good to gather with you. I had the privilege this week uh, to, to preach the word. Uh, my name is Colin Vandenbosch. I, I serve here at Christ Church uh, by leading the student ministry, and it's just an honor this morning to, uh, to bring the word to you. And uh, as even Chris has said, we're continuing on uh, in our series, Parting Words, where we're looking at kind of the farewell discourse and, uh, and some of the last words that Jesus has for us before he, uh, he goes to the cross. And uh, last week, uh, Pastor Brian preached a message on the work of the Holy Spirit um, as something that God has given to us for our advantage. And even Lauren mentioned that this morning, uh, to guide, to lead us, and even to convict the world. Um, but though even further, there's this, there's this idea that I think was so helpful um, that was that the Holy Spirit in us is better than Jesus beside us. And that's a very big idea that we're going to continue even talking about this morning. But, but I would encourage you, if you weren't here, uh, it was a powerful message last week. I heard from so many people that it was really helpful for them in understanding uh, the work of the Holy Spirit even today. Uh, but I would encourage you to go back uh, and look at that and, and listen to that and uh, prayerfully discern what the Lord's speaking to you through that. But, uh, but even so, today we're continuing on that. And so if you have your Bible and you want to open up to John 16, uh, last week the, the beginning of the message was, uh, or that message was through John 16. And uh, and this message uh, is this idea, we have this big idea that God turns our sorrow into joy. Um, but before we get to um, that passage, I just want to pray and uh, you can turn as we do that. But if you just want to bow your heads even with me as we, as we approach God's word in a few moments. Lord, this morning I pray that even through this message, God, you would just be first and foremost glorified. Lord, we're here not for uh, just a message of uh, like a TED talk from the world, but God, we're here to, that our souls might be nourished by your word. Lord, it is our daily bread. It is the very thing uh, that, that, that nourishes us and feeds us as believers. But God, I pray that even as we turn to this text, God, that your truth uh, might bear witness about the testimony of the gospel in us. God, that we might know it, that it would actually lead us as your passage shows us to, to joy, to lasting peace and hope in you. God, I pray that in the midst of us just being such a stiff-necked people, God, I pray that your grace would be seen through this. That God, that it wouldn't just uh, go in one ear and out the other, God, but that this word by your grace would transform us that God, it would change us, that we wouldn't just leave this room unchanged and, and still stiff-necked, but God, that you would soften our hearts. God, we know that you can do the heavy lifting in these moments, and God, we ask that you would do that. God, that every soul in this room would be changed and transformed because of your word. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. And so this morning, before we head into the text, I actually, um, I just wanted to reflect on something with you. You know, we've been going through the parting words, the farewell discourse for a couple months now. And, uh, and there's something that I've realized, um, even in preparing this message and, and studying it, is that we can actually, um, at times, uh, miss the context of what's happening. Um, the farewell discourse, we, you know, we've got six verses today, um, and we're going to enter into those. But the farewell discourse is 147 verses. And, uh, and, and I think it's really important for us, even just as, as listeners, to recognize that. Um, that the farewell discourse happens uh, over the course of a, maybe an hour or two, a couple hours, but we separate it into months of messages. Uh, and this can actually be really difficult for us because we kind of miss maybe some of, the, some of the flavors, the overtones that Jesus actually communicates to his disciples uh, in the moments of the messages pre 
previous to this. Um, but here's maybe this, this idea is this, is one of the things that I've come to realize in life, so also with, with scripture, is that if we don't understand the context, we often miss the weight of the moment. I don't know if you guys have ever watched a movie. Maybe you started halfway through the movie and you're like, I don't know really what's going on with this movie because you missed the beginning of it. Or the same thing happens with books. Normally we don't pick up a book and just start halfway through uh, because we miss the context. We miss the character development. We, we actually miss what's going on. Uh, and so for us today, I just want to look back a little bit. Uh, again, likewise with biblical interpretation, it's actually really unhelpful for us to just isolate any text apart from its larger con uh, contextual whole right? We know this. We're good Bible scholars. We, we do this. So it's important that we look back a little bit. But again, in our case, we're going to spend 35 to 40 minutes looking at six verses. That's part of a larger whole. And so while we're in, we're, we're in John 16, I'd actually even encourage you in this moment to go back to chapter 11. And I want to highlight a couple things. But here's the thing that we're going to see that I think is so important. Chapter 11 all the way to chapter 20 in the book of John is actually one week in real time, right? This is a, a real historical event that John is capturing and writing about in his gospel. And we, and, and rightfully so, I think it's important that we kind of parse out the weeks and we, and, we, and we preach it over the course of months, but it can be so unhelpful for us to actually see the weight of the moment. Do you see what I'm saying here? And so it's important for us to look back, but I just want to highlight the course of events that happened from, from John 11 all the way to John 20, which I, pr I promise you, I won't preach a message today from John 11 to John 20. We'd be here all day. Um, maybe, maybe we will someday. Okay, no. Um, but from the beginning of the Passover week, which is really um, actually right before that, um, but, but the, it's the beginning of Passover week and, and Christ has his triumphal procession. He's riding onto the, into Jerusalem on his donkey. There's the Last Supper, the beginning of the farewell discourse. Then, then there's the betrayal. And then, and then Peter actually cuts that dude's ear off. You remember that? And Jesus then goes to trial and he's getting his crown of thorns, he's beaten, he's flogged, he carries the cross, the, there's the crucifixion that happens, there's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and it's all just one week, okay? And I'm preaching six verses of something that's a, a part of a larger whole of 147 verses, which is part of that larger 11 through 20. And so, so we're just narrowing in today on a couple things, but we've got to really see the weight of the moment. I think whenever we come to church, uh, I don't think we often are ready to experience what the, maybe the disciples are experiencing in the moment. And, and we've got to kind of get there. We've got to bring ourselves there to see it. We run the risk of missing the weight of this moment. And today, I, my heart is that I don't want the truth of this passage to go one, in one ear and out the other. I want it to genuinely change and transform me. That's my hope that, that God would do that work in you through this. And so while I mentioned, again, we're in John 16, we're back in, in chapter 11, and I want to highlight some things in chapter 11 through chapter 16 that will lead us to reading our text and actually see, hopefully, uh, what God wants to communicate through his word to us. But, but in chapter 11, we actually see the high priests and the Pharisees beginning to plot to kill Jesus. They plan to arrest him on sight for blasphemy against God. You know, Jewish law dictated that the punishment for blasphemy is death. Right? We kind of have a working knowledge of this. But in chapter 12, this Passover begins. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and all the people with their palm branches are, are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. The people, the crowds, they're all, they're all chanting Hosanna because this king is riding into town on a donkey. 
You know, they think Jesus is coming in to save them from the subjugation or, or to, from being subjected to the Roman government and the powers that be. Hosanna literally means liberate us now. The people were expecting, this is so important, we have high expectations as people, they were expecting their savior and king to overthrow the power and establish a kingdom here on this earth. But then even in this chapter, shortly after this, Jesus predicts his own death and he says this, he says, I will be lifted up from the earth, beginning to predict his death on a cross. But then chapter 13, the beginning of our farewell discourse, the last supper, right? Over the Passover meal, we see it's, it's probably Thursday night, maybe 7 or 8 p.m. in the, in the Holy Week. And, and we can kind of put ourselves there. We're, we're seeing the, the disciples reclining around at the table. And, and Jesus says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. That's a big way of saying he knows he's about to die. Right? Jesus says, the hour has come. In verse 19, he's even speaking of his betrayal. And he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. He's talking to his disciples. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus begins here to prepare his disciples for his imminent departure. This is a theme we're going to see consistently here. But then chapters 14 to 16. We read so many similar ideas where Jesus is, is sitting around this table or walking in the garden with his disciples saying these things to him. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. What an encouraging, positive thing for Jesus to say to them. He, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus says over and over, I will send the helper, the spirit of truth to be with you forever. You see Jesus encouraging his disciples? In the farewell discourse, there's actually nine specific references to the Holy Spirit and a bunch more that are general references. But then in verse 28 of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And again, I am going away and I will come to you. You see this theme here? Jesus is comforting his disciples. In chapter 15, once again, he says this, he's preparing them for his death. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. In the beginning of chapter 16, if you're already turning there, he says, I have said these things to keep you from falling away. But here in the beginning of chapter 16, there's one other big elephant in the room that we need to acknowledge. The truth of Jesus's departure is setting in for the disciples. Everything they hoped for in the new reign, everything that they expected the Savior King to bring, in Jerusalem and in the, in the kingdom that, that, that was Rome, to, to destroy it, to, to be the king forever in Israel is disappearing before their eyes. I've got a passage on the, on the screen, John 16, 6. Look at this. Brian preached this last week. But because I've said these things to you, Jesus says to the disciples, sorrow has filled your hearts. Sorrow has filled your hearts. Do you see the weight of this moment? The disciples are sitting there with Jesus and the reality of the moment is sinking in. We might think that the disciples are trying to grasp onto, to, no, 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 Jesus, like you can do it. Like you can overthrow the empire, right? The text speaks that all that remained in the disciples' hearts was sorrow. Hope was gone. 
The word filled means what it says. Uh, It means that everything else was pushed out of the hearts of the disciples. There wasn't this glimmer of hope. There wasn't this glimmer of joy that everything that was in the hearts of the disciples was sorrow because everything else was pushed out. Any amount of hope, expectation, joy had been abruptly replaced with the realization, the sinking feeling that Jesus was going to leave them and Jesus is going to die. The disciples were filled with complete sorrow in their hearts. Do you see the weight of this moment? Are you there with me? Do you see that? You know, in less than one week, the disciples went from our king is here to usher in his kingdom to reign forever and ever to the weeping and mourning and sorrowful realization that our king is leaving us to die a gruesome, horrible, and accursed death on a cross. Jesus is still with them, but they are lost. Jesus is still with them, but they are lost. With this in mind, let's all turn our attention to our text today. And I hope that you'd have a pen ready and and scripture ready. Let's open up God's word here. John 16, 6 through 22. Let's read this. There's going to be some things I'm going to ask you to underline or highlight. I pray that you would do that. I hope that you would do that. Verse 16, let's look at this. A little while and you will see me. Underline C. Underline C right there. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Underline that. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. Underline that. And again, a little while and you will see me. Underline that. Anything with see, just underline it, all right? And, it, and because I am going to the Father, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean a little while? You can underline that. That's a big idea here. We do not know what he is talking about, says the disciples. Jesus knew that he wanted to ask them. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, again, you can underline it, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, filled with sorrow, but but your sorrow will turn, big word, underline that, highlight that, into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, just like Jesus' hour. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You know, this morning, our big idea is simply this, is that God turns sorrow into joy. God turns sorrow into joy. We see how God transforms the momentary sorrow into a lasting and permanent joy. You know, a lot of people talk about happiness and joy, and happiness is something that's temporary, that, that kind of leaves us and is, is here, and it, it comes and it goes. But joy is something that abides, that stays, that remains. It's something that God gifts us as believers, even as Chris has mentioned this earlier. But, but imagine here with me. Again, even as Jesus is speaking to the disciples, the confusion and the sorrow they must have felt, 
their teacher, their friend, was telling them that he would be taken away and their hopes turned to sorrow. The disciples can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. The first observation that I want to draw from this text is from verses 16 to 20. It's this. It's awaiting his crucifixion. Jesus comforts his disciples in the moment. You know, this, uh, this passage, this, this realization hit me this week in a way that comforted my soul so dearly. It's this first idea. Awaiting his own crucifixion, Jesus comforts his disciples in the moment. Remember, the hour has come. By this, many scholars, by this time, many scholars think that this is probably like midnight or 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. And, and the realization is further and further setting in that Judas is actually already gone. He's left. He's gathering the chief priests. He's gathering the Pharisees. He's, he's gathering a band of soldiers. And Judas is coming to betray Jesus. He's bringing the armed brigade with their weapons and their torches. Yet, while all that's happening, what is Jesus doing? Jesus, while knowing this full well that his betrayal, arrest, trial, flogging, crucifixion, and death on a cross were all imminent, what is Jesus doing? In his selflessness, he chose to comfort the disciples. This is amazing. Do you see this? Amidst all this context, knowing his hour has come, amidst the greatest moment in all of human history, the greatest selfless act of sacrifice through all of human history, the greatest mark of love ever, Jesus is not saying, woe is me that I'm leaving you. He's saying, no, I'm going to, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm comforting you. I'm with you. I'm here with you. Even right here in this moment, I hope that you see the heart of God being revealed to us. That in the midst of his greatest moment of sacrifice, Jesus was thinking of the disciples. Jesus' heart for us is so big. There are certain times when you read scriptures and God reveals a simple yet profound truth to you with the way God acts or the way Jesus acts towards somebody. The self-sacrifice that Jesus exhibited in the moment is unparalleled. You will not find another deity or God in the world that has this level of love and care and desiring heart of sacrifice for other people. You know, it's so beautiful. Even in John 11, there's the story of, of Lazarus. And the Jews even look at Jesus and Jesus is weeping over the death of Lazarus. And, and, and this is what it says. It says, uh, look, the Jews even said, look how much he cares, Right? Jesus is truly the suffering servant. The man who Philippians 2 talks about as the man born in human likeness who empties himself on the cross and humbles himself to the point of obedience to, the, to death. Yet here, Jesus seeks the disciples' comfort, peace, and joy. Jesus seeks the disciples' comfort, peace, and joy. You know what's amazing about this? That action of Jesus is not a duty to him, it's a passion. Jesus seeking the disciples' comfort, peace, and joy is not something he's got he's to work to do. It's who he is. How beautiful is that? How beautiful of a reflection is that of our God? The Lord seeks the joy of his people. Even though the grief is temporary and Christ knows it, he seeks to reduce the pain by comforting them in the moment. Let's not forget the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Who appears to them? Let us not forget Mary at the, at the empty tomb who's, who's weeping there. Jesus appears to her and comforts her. 
You know, this was said earlier already is that in 1 Peter 5, 7, it says this, cast your anxieties, your, your burdens, your sorrows, your, 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 uh, your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you, believer. God cares for you. God does care what the disciples were walking through and God still cares what you're walking through, believer. Even now, you may be reminded of this amazing truth. This amazing truth that in the midst of God's greatest act of sacrifice in the world, he still cared for his disciples. Awaiting his own crucifixion, Jesus comforts his disciples in the moment. You know, I want to I reflect on our, our second point, but we need to go back into the scripture and we need to re- read verse 20 and 21. So would you look at that with me? Verse 20 and 21. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy of a human being has been born into the world. And so we've got a question for us today is what is Jesus trying to communicate to his disciples through this analogy, through this illustration? Honestly, one of the biggest words in verse 20, and you guys can see it in your text here, it's this word turn or turned. To, be, to turn is to emerge, is to become, is to mark a transition from one state to another, to be born or to be transformed. You know, this is interesting. When Jesus says he's going to turn our sorrow into joy, it's, it, this is a recognition that, again, the, the, the disciples are filled with sorrow. It's not that maybe sorrow would be poured out like a drink and then joy would be poured in. It's that the very thing that the disciples were experiencing sorrow over is, in fact, the very thing that God would use to be transformed from sorrow in a moment into joy. Do you see that? It's the same event. Rather, it's the sorrow that filled that would be transformed into the fullness of joy. Jesus, is, Jesus uses a really helpful example here of, of a mother giving birth to a child. I was doing some uh, digging and I found this article. It says that 100% of moms um, that have bared a child over the course of nine months, uh, giving birth to them, experience a lot of hurt, pain, and tears. Okay, that wasn't from an article. Um, that's just from real life, okay? 100% of moms. Can I get an amen in the room? Amen. Okay, yes. Thank you. Um, But what is Jesus saying here? Okay. What is Jesus saying here? Check this out. This is the second thing you can write in. It's the same event that fills a mother with sorrow and anguish is the same event that brings her great joy. You see that? The same event that brings a a mother sorrow and anguish is the same event that brings her great joy. The mother's pain is intense, but it gives birth to joy in new life. Chuck Swindoll helpfully says, he says, as the pain grows, the transition from sorrow to joy nears. Then, in an instant, the greatest of human suffering, mothers, just get, it's greatest human suffering, okay, becomes the occasion of our greatest joy. You see that? You know, it's, uh, I've had three kids and my wife has experienced the greatest pain uh, and I was there, I got to see it. I was not experiencing pain in the moment, though I almost fainted a couple times. Um, there's this moment, and many of you who've seen this or experienced this, it's, it's the baby laying on the mother. That sigh of relief. 
everything that I've sacrificed for, all the nausea, all the pain, all the times. Oh, come on. You know, everything that's, all the weight that's been experienced in that, in a moment, is transitioned from sorrow to joy. The connection of pain here is actually a reference even back to the Old Testament. In Genesis 3, 16, where, where, it, where the childbirth is actually linked to the pain of the fall. Bearing a child is no longer a painful, uh, or is bearing a child is, is a long and painful process. Mothers experience those hard and harsh side effects. But Romans, Romans 5 actually really helpfully says that, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Giving birth is so painful. Again, amen? Can I get an amen? But check this out. The pain is productive. The pain is productive. Once the baby comes, I checked with my wife on this. She said I could say this. Once the baby comes, it is clear that no matter how much it hurt, it was worth it. Do you see that, believer? But when the hour has come and the baby isn't born and the nine months of the pain and the labor and delivery is here, it is turned in a moment into joy because of what it produced, a child. You see that? Here and other places in scripture, there's this connection being made between the suffering of pregnancy and delivery to the suffering of creation and the work of God in the world. One leading to the birth of a child and another leading to eternal salvation and eternal joy. Um, pause. Uh, this is awesome, okay? Mothers, do you see this? God is linking your pain in, in childbearing to the joy and the pain of this creation, but leading to an everlasting eternal joy with God. There's some value in that. That's awesome. But the same event that fills a mother with sorrow and anguish is the same event that brings her great joy. But here's what it leads to. It's this recognition, and this is the other side of the coin there. The same event that fills the disciples with sorrow is the same event that brings them salvation, that brings them an eternal, abiding, unstealable joy away from them because of what Christ has done. One commentator puts it this way, again, so helpful. What the disciples first received as death and loss in weeping, lamenting, and mourning has itself become the source of their joy. In the same way a mother struggles through the pregnancy and delivery and labor and all that, it produces, it's productive, it produces the child. In the same way that the pain of the moment leads the disciples to one day experiencing that eternal, unseparatable joy that God gives us. This passage as a whole just has so much meat on its bones. It's not just like a chicken drumstick, I'm telling you. It's like there's so much here. It's so amazing. But here's the thing is that Jesus assures us that just as a woman has anguish in the midst of her childbirth is replaced by a new joy, so also the disciples' joy in a moment will turn. It will transform, not be replaced, not poured out and then joy poured in, but the same event that leads to sorrow in the moment leads to joy forevermore. Do you see that? But again, there's, there's kind of one more point that I want to get to this morning. But I've got to do some legwork on this. This one's, this one's I think, is a little bit difficult. I mentioned uh, to a few people this week that, to be honest, this is probably the most uh, theologically dense passage that I've ever had to study that I've had to preach. Um, it is insane. There's so much here. I can't get to it all, um, but I'm trying to give you what the Lord is revealing to me to communicate, to, to, to give to you today. But here's the thing. I, again, I wish I could get to all of it. 
But there's one more thing that we need to walk on or walk through. And there's one more thing I really want to draw your attention to that I think is going to give us, in the midst of what Jesus has just communicated, some of the most uh, great joy and abiding joy, the thing that leads us to abiding joy. And, and, and this is what I want to talk about. So if, if we really want to rightly understand what, what God is communicating to us, then we've got to see really what the author is pushing forward in, in this as Jesus was communicating. So, so let's get our eyes back down on the scripture and let's read verse 16 again. We're going to go back to 16. Check this out. And I had you highlight and underline a couple things. Check this out. He says, a little while, we underline that, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. This idea is repeated multiple times. The disciples have confusion and, and, and they're not really sure what's going on. And then even, even later on in, in verse 22, so you have sorrow and all, but I will see you again. And when he sees us again, your hearts will rejoice. Your hearts will go from sorrow to joy. And no one will be able to steal that from you today. But when is that? Like what is a little while? Right? I think that's the big question. He says like seven, six, seven, eight times in this passage. What is a little while? He says a little while I won't see you. What is he talking about there? I, th I think it's pretty simple. He's talking about leaving them to go to the cross, right? But what is a little while that he will see them? I think that's really the big question. And I think we've really got to settle on this. We've really got to figure this out. What is Jesus referring to as he's saying a little while and you will see him again? There's three options. A lot of people, commentators, theologians talk about this. There's three options. And, and to be honest, they're not mutually exclusive options. They, they actually, there could be some overlap. I think there's one that he's specifically talking about, but there's actually maybe some hope or some maybe momentary relief that we can find in these other things. But the first option is this, is that Christ is saying, hey, I will see you again in a little bit after I'm resurrected, right? Right? He does appear to them, right? We know that. Theologically, we know, we know Scripture teaches that, that Jesus appeared to them. He appeared to, the, he, he appeared to Mary. He appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He talked to Thomas. He's in the upper room. He's all those places. He, he appeared to them. But is that the moment that Jesus is talking about? Or is a little while a different one? So the second option is that the disciples and believers today will see Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's our second option. That we will see Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the third option is this. The disciples and all of believers will see Christ at his second coming. So three options. Is it right after uh, the resurrection? Is it, is, it when, uh, is it right after Pentecost when, when the Holy Spirit's poured out? Or, or is it at the, the second coming of Christ, right? Which is he talking about? In a little while, right? I'll just be honest. It's probably not option three. Because he's not, probably not talking about a little while then. Because God is actually speaking to the disciples. And again... He, he probably already made their joy complete, right? He probably already was with them. And it's probably not option one because we know that Jesus leaves them again because he ascends. And so it's most likely option two. But here's the thing. Let's talk about this a little bit. Which of these options is a little while that leads a disciple to a lasting and permanent joy? This is really cool because it applies not just to the disciples then, but it applies to now because option two is talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's this word here uh, in, in, verse, in verse 16, and, and it's this kind of the same flow of words. It's this word see. You know, Jesus says, in a little while you will no longer see me. And again, when we think of the word see, we think of like our senses, right? We think of like, hey, I can, you know, John, I see you right there. I see you. You're here. Uh, I know you. We have multiple senses as humans, right? There's a lot of ways, faculties, whatever that the Lord's given us that we can sense things. One of them is sight. And Jesus is saying, in a little while, I will no longer see you, or you will no longer see me. 
The disciples will no longer see him. Why? Because he's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. And he's going to, he's going to ascend eventually, right? They're going to see him again. There will be a time when the disciples don't see Jesus. But there's this other word that's used. It's this word, see, that Jesus says in a little while, you will see me. Guess what? It's a different word. Um, but it's translated, see. What is this word, what does this other word see mean? It's this, it's this Greek word, hara'o. And this idea is, is, is not just our ability to sense something and to see it with our eyes, but it's an inward sight. It's an inward sight. It refers to an intuitive sight, one that happens from inside of us. It's a Greek word, and, and it's different, again, than the previous one, but it means to perceive, to experience, and to discern. What has God given us that reveals and gives inward sight of spiritual realities? The Holy Spirit. In a little while, we won't see him because we won't see him with our eyes, but in a little while, we will see him because he's given us the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit will be poured out to us after Pentecost, the disciples and even us today. One of the most profound reasons why the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you is because the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to you. Jesus has been alluding to this the whole farewell discourse. If you go back this week and go read, I encourage you to do this, I encourage you to read chapters even 13 all the way to the end of 17. Look at how he's doing this. He says some, some things that allude to this so often. But after a time, the disciples will see Jesus differently, not just with sight, but with the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of them, giving them spiritual eyes to see the truth. They will see Jesus differently because the Holy Spirit is inside of them. Jesus is going to leave them and go to the Father. He can't, he can't, we can't, I can't see Jesus on the throne of heaven apart from the Holy Spirit revealing it to me. Christ is seated in the heavenly places. How do I see him? I see him through the Holy Spirit. This is how passages like Galatians 2.20 make sense, right? I've been crucified with Christ. And I who live, but who lives in me? Christ lives in me. How does Christ live in me? Because the Holy Spirit indwells me. How is Christ with you today, believer? Because the Holy Spirit indwells you. Do you see that? The Spirit inside of us, and here's our last point. The Spirit inside of us causes our hearts to rejoice and our joy to be permanent. The Holy Spirit inside of us bears, check this out. The Holy Spirit inside of us bears witness to the truth of the gospel, leading our sorrows in a moment to be transformed into eternal joys. Wow. You know, Acts 32, or 13, 52 really helpfully says, the disciples were filled, check this out, not with sorrow, but with, after, you know, after the Holy Spirit descended, with joy in the Holy Spirit. Simple verse, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwelling in us is the very thing that manifests true joy, lasting joy in the heart of a believer. Why? Because it points us to, to Christ. It allows us to know God. Not just that it's some distant deity who's, who's apart from us and who maybe loves us, but allows us to truly know God and to behold him and to see him. I love this. One of the fruits of the Spirit inside of us is, of course, love, Joy, right? God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we might have joy. But check this out on the side, Romans 5. This is so crucial. This is so awesome. Romans 5, 1 through 5 here on the screen. Therefore, 
Since we have been justified by faith, right? We have faith in God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, our future in Christ, that the spirit inside of us in the moment is bearing witness to. Not only that, but we rejoice Check this out, in in childbearing too, in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and the hope does not put us to shame. Why? Why doesn't the hope put us to shame? Because God's love, the truth of the gospel has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Amen? Wow. How amazing is that? One commentator put it this way. He says, The definitive and permanent nature of the disciples' joy is not based on the absence of any future grief or affliction, but by the placement of grief and suffering into the larger context of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, you can have peace with God, relationship with God. Your eternal security in Christ is set. That is what produces joy. Not happiness, joy. Because of what Christ has done, we can have peace with God. It's so amazing. The assurance of our faith is sealed by the Spirit producing in us joy. You know, this is why I think a passage like 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 is so important to understand as as we think about afflictions and pains. The passage begins, it says, so we do not lose heart. So we do not get filled with sorrow. So we are not bound by the hopeless, hopelessness found in our society. So our joy, even as our passage in John 16 talks about, does not get stolen from us by the enemy. Our treasures in heaven are real and present to us moment by moment because Christ, by his Holy Spirit, live, is living inside of us, bearing witness to the truth of it. So we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory, a glory, a future in Christ that far outweighs them all. Sorry, that was NIV. That was not ESV. I remember that was like eight years ago. Okay, That's why it's so important because we realize that our future, our future is sealed by the Holy Spirit inside of us, giving us hope that in the midst of our suffering and our pains, which are real, God gives us a lasting and permanent hope. The spirit inside of us causes our hearts to rejoice and our joy to be permanent. Amen? I have one last quote I want to share with you. It'll be on the screen. And and this, this is really, really powerful. In the Greco-Roman and Jewish world, the cross was was universally recognized as a symbol of death. It was a place for weeping and mourning, yet all that changed when the Father sent his Son to the cross for the purpose of taking upon himself our debt. That's the gospel, isn't it? The day Christ died is no longer bad, but Good Friday. Just as the cross for the Christian is no longer a symbol of death, but a symbol of eternal life, In light of the cross, all grief and affliction is light and momentary. And true joy, though waiting for ultimate consummation, when Jesus returns again in the future, has already begun. But check this out. Just as our passage points to, the cross has given birth to new life. The pain of the moment, 
leads to the same event that leads to joy. A life in God that involves fellowship with God because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, believer. An experience of complete joy because your eternal security is set. This is not to say that Christian, Christianity removes all of life's problems. It is simply to say that Christianity explains all of life's problems. Subjugating the life of the world to the life provided by God. Check this out. Believer, your future has been safely secured in the past. It's nailed to the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you showed an abundance of your graciousness and care and love towards us in the gospel. But God, you didn't just leave us without you. You you left us, but God, you gave us the Holy Spirit. God, we're so thankful that we weren't left in our sorrow. Jesus even says that I tell you these things so that you won't fall away. Lord, we have hope in the future in you even now. God, we're so thankful that we have eternal security in in your spirit living inside of us as a a deposit of our faith, a, a deposit of the things to come. But God, I pray that we would know further and further that the weight of these moments, the weight of this reality would bear itself on our lives and God, it would transform us to to live a life by faith in you because Christ, you live in us by the Spirit. And God, in the midst of all of our momentary afflictions and pains, God, just as you cared for the disciples in the moment, God, you are so present caring for us now. We can cast our anxieties on you, God, because you care for us. How beautiful is that reality? Lord, I pray that our hearts would be nourished by that reality. Thank you, God. Amen.